We're going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome this evening by turning our attention to the second chapter of the epistle, and I will be reading from verse 17 through verse 29, which is the end of the chapter. So I'd like to ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He who has ears to hear the Word of that God, let them hear. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, as we attend to this Thy Word, we ask that You would grant us understanding of it that You would prepare our hearts through the law for the hearing afresh of the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday evening, we began looking at chapter 2, and I mentioned at the time that after Paul's uh, elaborate discussion of general revelation and how the whole world 
suppresses the plain and manifest knowledge of God that He gives to every person in creation, that He turned from this universal guilt of the human race and turned His guns, as it were, directly at His kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel, addressing them at the beginning of chapter 2 as calling them, O man. And he began in this chapter to talk about the hypocrisy of those who were in a special relationship to God, those who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, who were living in the same kind of godlessness that manifested itself among pagans and Gentiles, who are foreigners and strangers to the covenant that the Jews enjoyed in their own history. And remember last week we talked about that dreadful experience of sinners who every time they sin, they are, as it were, making a deposit in the account of their corruption, which account is mounting exponentially as they are storing up wrath or heaping up wrath against the day of wrath. And I told you I was hoping that soon we would get out from underneath the oppression of this indictment that God gives to His people here in the early chapters of Romans that we might hasten to the good news that comes in the declaration of the gospel. But again, before Paul brings us to the gospel, he first examines our condition under the law. It's one of the reasons why in classical Lutheran theology there remains such an important uh, emphasis on both law and gospel. We remember the torment that Martin Luther endured when he was in the monastery at Erfurt, where he would go to the confession every day, as was required of the brothers there in the monastery. And normally, confession would last for the monks ten minutes at most. But Luther would go into the confessional and see his father confessor and would spend an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours until the senior uh, fathers in the monastery were filled with frustration with this young monk, and they chastened him said, Brother Martin, if you're going to come in here with this long list of sins, bring something serious that you come with these minor transgressions, these peccadilloes, as it were, and take up all of our time. But what they didn't really fully understand about Luther is that you remember he came into the monastery, leaving the university where he had already distinguished himself as a brilliant student of jurisprudence, preparing for a career in law. He brought that keen analytical ability to dissect law with him to the monastery, and he would examine the law of God in great depth and in great detail. And the more he studied the law, the more troubled he was 
in his conscience, provoking his famous statement on one occasion when somebody asked him if he loved God. He said, love God. Sometimes I hate God because all I see is Christ as the judge. He has the scales of justice in front of me, and He weighs my sins. And the scales are always weighted against me. And so Luther was terrified in his conscience by the law of God, not because he was neurotic, but because he was perceptive, as Paul himself was in his expert understanding of the righteous demands that God imposes upon His people. But our problem, beloved, as we listen to this, is that we fail to feel the weight of it. We are so hardened in our sin, we're so accustomed to our corruption that we give our attention not to the law of God, but to the social customs of our culture and measure ourselves in conformity to those customs. And we measure ourselves not against the standard of God's perfect righteousness, but as Paul will later write uh, about this, he says to other Christians, he said, those of you who judge yourselves by yourselves, and judge yourselves among yourselves are not wise. You remember the parable that Jesus told of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a publican. And the Pharisee looked up into heaven and he prayed. He said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, liars, adulterers, extortioners, Thank you that I'm not like that miserable tax collector over there in the corner. Now, he's thanking God. He's saying there, but for your grace go I. But he obviously has a highly exalted view of his own performance because he was judging himself by the, the curve of the culture. He had forgotten that God doesn't judge He doesn't grade on a curve. He grades against an absolute standard of perfect holiness. And that's what at least the publican understood when he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and simply cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And having told the parable, Jesus then turned to his audience and he said, which of the men went to his house justified. Not the Pharisee who judged himself by himself and judged himself among others, but the publican who knew his sin and cast himself on the mercy of the court. That's why we have the law read almost every Sunday here at St. Andrews, is that we can always hear that standard, see that mirror that reflects God's perfect character, and it's a mirror that we look in. And when I look in the mirror of the law, every one of my blemishes become instantly 
obvious. I can't hide from what the law reveals to me about who I am. No wonder Paul speaks of the law as the schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. And so now he's talking here in the second part of chapter 2 about continuing on with this question of hypocrisy and the law. Verse 17, he says, Indeed, you're called a Jew, and as a Jew, you rest your case on the law. You have the law of God. That's the glory of Israel. No other nation on the planet has such a clear manifestation of the law of God. Now, we tend to think of the law in terms of the Old Testament as being reduced simply to the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments is only the foundation of the law. And after the Ten Commandments are given, a whole host of laws are added to it that we call the Holiness Code. We have an addition to the Ten Commandments. We have the case law of the Old Testament that further reveals the character of God and shows us how far short we have fallen of the standard of that law. But if we can hide from the law, put the law in a basket, escape that mirror, shatter that mirror, and just look around, we can always find somebody more sinful than we are and pat ourselves on the back. But we can't afford to do that. And God won't let us do that. He keeps coming to us with this law. And so, here Paul says to the Jew, you rest on the law, you make your boast in God, you know His will, you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and you're even confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Could we not extrapolate this critique that Paul gives to his kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel, and apply it to us in the church. We have the Word of God. We rely on the Word of God. We rest on our doctrine. We've been instructed by the Word of God. We are confident that we are called to be guides to the blind, a light to those who are perishing, a light to those who are in darkness. We instruct the foolish. We're the teacher of infants. We have the form of knowledge and truth. Could that not be said also of us? You know, elsewhere, Paul rebukes the people for having a form of godliness, but not the substance of it. The outward forms are there, but that form is an empty shell that once God bores through that shell and examines the heart beneath the external form, there is no internal reality. That's the judgment that Paul is giving 
to Israel, but also has application to us. He goes on, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? These are not just empty questions. We as Christians all stand up and say, it's wrong to steal. You know, if you have a pledge campaign in a local church, and you have the people in the congregation pledge that they're going to give so much in the next calendar year, the rule of thumb in ecclesiastical circles is this. Don't ever count on receiving more than 80% of the pledges that people make because people think nothing of not fulfilling their pledges. I wish I could take you to Ligonier, to the accounting office, and see how many people purchase material from our ministry who never pay. It's not just pagans who don't pay their bills. It's professing Christians who do that. The same people who shake their finger at the unbeliever for not being honest and forthright are practicing this very same things. They're stealing. You who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? We have the law of God, but what are we doing with it? We boast of it while we break it. And then here's the, the clincher here at the end of this sec- section. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know that one of the standard complaints and objections to people who are not involved in the church make about church members? It's a false accusation, but it's one you hear all the time where it says, the church is full of hypocrites. You ever hear that? Maybe you've said it. I heard one minister when he heard it that somebody said, the church is full of hypocrites. And the minister said, yes. There's always room for one more. <laughs> and he went on to say, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> but hypocrisy is a damnable thing, as our Lord constantly had to rebuke the Pharisees, who were the masters of masquerading, who pretended to have a form of righteousness that they really did not possess. But what happens is when people see us as Christians, we don't pretend to be perfect. You know that. You know, the church is filled with sinners. That's that's the only qualification. Well, that's not the only qualification, but it's the first qualification there is to join a church. You have to be a sinner to get in, because there's no place for perfect people in the church. And one of the reasons that people call us hypocrites is that they notice that we're not perfect. But the hypocrite is the one who claims to be more righteous than he is. Now, that's a serious matter. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that we 
claim more righteousness than we possess. This is so destructive. And one of the problems we have, one of the real practical problems of ministry that we have in the life of the church is that we set the standard high for behavior. We encourage people to grow in their faith and in their sanctification. But at the same time, we're encouraging them to grow in their sanctification. We're also putting heat on them and pressure on them to make them feel that they have to pretend to be more righteous than they actually are. Do you ever feel that? I think we all feel that. And so we talk the talk, but don't always walk the walk. And the world is watching that. And Paul says to the hypocrite in Israel that the Gentiles are blaspheming God because of us, because of how we treat them. They say, and how many times have you heard it said, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. Now, let me just say two things about that. It's true that the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers blaspheme because of us, because of the horrible example and witness that we often give to them. On the other hand, if there's any comfort here, it's this, that if we treated them perfectly, they would still blaspheme God. (laughs) So the fact that, that we add to their impulse of blasphemy does not get them off the hook in the final analysis. One of my favorite stories, you know, that I've ever encountered was told to me by a Christian who was on the PGA golf tour, and he had a friend on the tour who was not a Christian, and that friend the previous year had had a tremendous year and was voted golfer of the year. And at this tournament that he was the defending champion, he was honored for being the previous year golfer of the year. But this year, in which he was to be honored for the previous year, he went into a tailspin and was playing terribly. But part of the honor for being named the golfer of the year was that he played in the pre-am and pro-am of the uh, tournament where he was uh, paired with the President of the United States, Jack Nicklaus, and Billy Graham. That's a high-powered foursome. You got the player of the year from last year, I'm not going to give you his name to protect the guilty. The uh, President of the United States, I'm not even going to tell you which one that was, because that's also a protective, terrible golfer. And you had Billy Graham and Jack Nicklaus. And so at the end of the round, this fellow walked off the golf course. He had played poorly, and he, he, he was uh, red in the face, and he went over to the uh, practice tee and start hammering drives down the practice tee to get rid of his frustrations. And my friend sat down and watched him for a few minutes, and he said, uh, uh, what's the matter? And he said, I don't need to have Billy Graham trying to shove religion down my throat all day. And so then he went back to beating the balls, and my friend after a few more minutes, he said, really? He said, did Billy 
really put it to you today. And the golfer turned to my friend and he said, no. No, actually, Billy didn't say a word about religion. I just had a bad day. But why would he say that? Why would he say that Billy Graham was trying to shove religion down his throat when Billy Graham didn't say a mumbling word to him? Because Billy Graham didn't have to say a mumbling word to him. <laughs> he knew who Billy Graham was and what Billy Graham represented and what Billy Graham stood for. And he was feeling crowded all day. He was uncomfortable in the presence of a man like Billy Graham. That's what happens. When I used to play golf, I didn't want anybody to know I was a minister. Because as soon as they asked me what I did, you know, I said, I teach, I do that, insurance, uh, life, eternal life, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Because I knew as soon as I told them I was a minister, they'd start apologizing to me for their language, as if I never heard it, and as if I never used it. And, and I would say, look, you don't need to apologize to me. It's God who's hearing everything you say. You don't need to worry about me. But they're uncomfortable. And so the, the Gentiles will blaspheme God at every opportunity. But we don't need to aid and abet them in their blasphemy by being less than kind, less than loving, less than sensitive to them as human beings. Paul goes on in verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And he goes on and talks here about the difference between outward circumcision and inward circumcision, the difference between the, uh, the letter of the law and the Spirit. And he said, you people have the letter of the law but you don't keep the Spirit where people outside may be more sensitive to the Spirit of the law than you are, even though they don't know the letter of the law. And he uses as his illustration this whole business of circumcision. And I want to take what time I have left tonight to talk a little bit with you about the significance of circumcision, because this is very important to Paul's understanding of redemption and of the law and of the gospel. In the Old Testament, Circumcision was the sign that God gave to His people of His covenant promise. You remember when He called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, out of paganism, and He promised to Abraham that He would be His God, and He would make them the father of a great nation. And He told them that His descendants would be as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the seashore. And then to confirm that promise, God went through an elaborate ritual to answer the questions that Abraham had. And I'll mention that in a moment. But then in the meantime, He required of Abraham 
circumcision, which was the cutting off of the foreskin of his flesh. And not only of Abraham was this requirement made, but also of his children. In the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was given to adults and to their children. That's the basic reason why the sign of the new covenant in Christian history is also given to the children of the covenant. Because when God gives His covenant promises, it's always to those who receive them and to their children, to their seed. But in any case, we have to stop for a moment and say, what is this sign of circumcision that is so central importance to the covenant people of the Old Testament? Remember, in Genesis 15, when God appeared to Abraham and told him that he would be his shield and his very great reward. Do you remember that in Genesis 15? And Abraham says, well, you know, thank you, that's very nice, but... Uh, what reward can you possibly give me? I'm already the richest man in the world, but I don't have any children. I don't have a son, and my heir is my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. So what can you give me? And God said, no, your heir will not be Eliezer of Damascus but in your old age and in your wife's barrenness, I will give you a son who will be the child of promise. And we read in Genesis 15, and we'll see this later on as Paul recalls it for the Romans, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. There was the first real clear teaching of justification by faith alone. And again, Paul is going to expand on that a little bit later, so I'll save that for then. But no sooner does he do this and says he believes God, he staggers at the promises that God said when he said he's going to make him a great nation. And then he said to God, well, how can I know for sure that you're going to give me these things? No, I'm an old man. My wife's barren. How can I have a child? How can I know for sure? That was his question. And remember, God put Abraham to sleep, and this deep sleep came upon him. And in the middle of that sleep, the terror of the presence of God was manifested to him. And again, well, actually, before he went to sleep, he told Abraham, when he said, how could I know? He said, I want you to go out and get these animals, a she-goat and some birds and that sort of thing. And he tells them to cut them in half and then set them next to each other down an aisle and, and like it's a gauntlet. And then after he does this, he puts Abraham to sleep. And in his sleep, Abraham sees this burning pot and this smoking furnace move down the aisle between these pieces. Remember? And in the vision, God said, know for sure that I will keep my covenant. You know, when we go to conferences and all that, you know, there's this crazy thing that Christian people do. I, I don't know what it is, but I don't know where it came from, but people bring Bibles up to me and ask me if I'll sign their Bible, and particularly the Reformation Study Bible, which, of course, everybody here has one, <laughs> because you can't get into heaven without it, okay? 
And so they asked me to sign the Bible, and, they, and then they asked me, put your life verse in there. I said, what, what's that? <laughs> what's a life verse? Where did that come from? I mean, is there one verse in all of this? When Jesus said we're supposed to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why do I have one verse that's going to define my life? So over my many years of doing this, I've signed a host of different verses. I won't be tied down to one of them. But the one I like to sign the most is Genesis 15, 17. And the people run back and read it. And the smoking pot and flame move between the pieces. <laughs> and they think I'm pulling their leg. But no, because it's a theophany. The fire represents God. And God moves between these pieces that have been torn asunder. And what he's saying to Abraham is this, Abraham, if I don't keep this promise, may I be cut in half. May the immutable God suffer a mutation. May the eternal God become temporal. Abraham, I'm not promising on my mother's grave. I don't have a mother. I'm not promising by the temple or the earth which is my footstool. I am promising by my own being, by my own character. My eternal Godhead is on the line. And you want to know if I'm going to keep my word. I'm pledging you by my very deity. As the author of Hebrews will later say about that event, because God could swear by nothing higher, He swore by Himself. But you see, the covenant was a cutting rite that was involved here. And on Abraham's side of the covenant, God commanded Abraham to have the foreskin of his flesh cut off, a very crass thing. Why? I remember many years ago, I was in Philadelphia. I went there once. It was closed. But... Uh, I was in Philadelphia because some uh, people at a, uh, a friend's meeting house, Quakers, had asked me to come and speak about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I talked about how the Old Testament covenant sign of circumcision was a sign by which it had two sanctions. There was a positive side to it and a negative side to it. The significance of the cutting rite of the circumcision was that God was consecrating, sort of cutting Israel out of the mass of nations in the world, separating them to Himself, distinguishing them as an act of grace, cutting them apart from fallen humanity. And so they bore this sign in their skin that they had been chosen by God's grace to receive the greatest benefit that any nation could have. But the negative side of the sign was this, that the Jew bore in his body the sign of the covenant that had both promises, benefits, blessings, and curses. Remember in Deuteronomy when God explains the significance of circumcision? 
And he says to them, if you keep my law and you keep my covenant, blessed are you in the country, blessed are you in the city, blessed are you when you sit down, blessed are you when you stand up, blessed are you when you're in the gate, blessed are you in the living room, blessed are you in the family room, blessed are you in the kitchen, blessed are you all over the place. But if you break my covenant and violate the law, then what? Cursed are you in the country, cursed are you in the city, cursed are you in the living room, the dining room, the family room, the kitchen, cursed are you wherever you are. That is, may you be cut off from all blessings that I give and receive the curse of judgment. Now, when I was in Philadelphia and I was giving that explanation, I'm in the middle of this explanation of what the significance of circumcision was, and somebody yelled out from the crowd, that's primitive and obscene. What do you do when somebody heckles you like that in the middle of a, of a, a message, a lecture? And I just stopped, and I said, what did you say? I knew what he said, but I wanted to have a moment to gather my thoughts and to see whether he really had the boldness to say it again. And he did. He said, I said, that's primitive and obscene. I said, I like that. I like your choice of words to describe it. I can't imagine anything more crass or more primitive as a religious rite than the cutting off of the foreskin of the man's flesh. You're right, that's primitive. However, the promise that God is making, He's not making for the benefit only of a Gnostic elite group of intellectuals. He's communicating His promise in a sign so base, so primitive, that the least of the people in the nation will be able to grasp it in its graphicness. I said, but I really like the word obscene because there's no better word to use to describe what sin is. And when we look to the New Testament and we see that Christ receives the curse of God when He hangs on the tree, when He takes upon Himself the corporate sins of His people, that is the greatest obscenity that the world has ever beheld. So thank you for pointing that out. I'll remember that. Primitive and obscene. That's exactly what the significance of this external sign is of circumcision. And Paul's reminding them that the very fact that they are circumcised does not guarantee the blessing. But if they remember Deuteronomy the second giving of the law, they would know that that sign of which they boast was the very sign that condemned them, marks them as covenant breakers. 
Now you see, the same could be said for us in our sign of the new covenant, baptism. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Joining the church has never saved anybody. It's an outward sign of what God promises to do inwardly. And the final analysis is not whether we're baptized outwardly, but are we baptized inwardly? Do we possess the spiritual reality that the sign points to? That's what Paul is saying to the Jew. I know you're circumcised. All those people that crucified Jesus were circumcised. And the Pharisees thought that because they had biological roots to Abraham, that that guaranteed them their salvation. And there are people today who think, well, I was born in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian home. I was baptized. I went to catechism. Joined the church. Enjoyed the sacrament. Last Tuesday afternoon, I had an old friend drop in and visit me, who's a Christian leader, and he was telling me that one of his daughters is not a believer. And this daughter, who is hostile to Christianity, has a daughter. And his daughter would not take his granddaughter to church. So he said to me, R.C., I baptized her in my swimming pool. (laughs) I wanted to make sure that she was covered. And so then we started talking about, well, did you really have to be a minister in order to administer baptism or the Lord's Supper? There's nothing in the Bible that says only the clergy can baptize or only the clergy can administer the sacraments. But the reason why that tradition developed in church history was to protect people from an abuse of these sacred signs. And as we were talking, I said, you know, I go back to my first Holy Communion. I was reared in a church that was the most liberal church in the city where I grew up. We still had to go and go through catechism class. I'd been baptized earlier, of course, in the Methodist church, and this was now in a Presbyterian church. Had to go through catechism, memorize the catechism, and then we had to be examined. There were like 30 of us in this catechism class, and we had to be examined in front of the whole congregation. I'll never forget it because I had this bright green tie with a hula dancer on it, and the minister called attention to it and embarrassed me in front of the whole congregation while he's examining me on the shorter catechism, and we had to answer the questions. Well, we all passed the test. And so on Maundy Thursday, we were confirmed, and after our confirmation, had our first Holy Communion. I remember after that first Holy Communion, I was standing in the foyer of the church, and one of my buddies said, well, what would you think? They gave us these paper-thin wafers. I said, the stuff tasted like fish food. And we all laughed, hee, 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 hee. And there was this little old lady there. She turned to me, and she said, how can you talk about that like that? And I thought, what's with this lady? 
What's the big deal? I'd obviously tramped on something that was sacred to her. But I had the, didn't have the slightest understanding of what the Lord's Supper was all about. And this was after three months of catechism, of giving a credible profession of faith before the elders, being examined before the whole congregation, and go to my first communion. I look back at that, and I, I know I've kept in some touch. I know something about everybody was in that class with me. And of the rest of the kids that were in that class with me at that time, I know of only one of them who's a professing Christian today. Do you see how easy it is for us to assume that we're in the kingdom of God just because we've been baptized or just because we joined the church or just because we went through a catechism class or just because we were confirmed? No. We look on outward appearances. God looks on the heart. And in the final analysis, the only circumcision that matters, the only baptism that matters, finally, is the baptism of the heart. That doesn't mean that we should do away with the external. No, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus made it clear that we were to be using these signs of the covenant for the world to see. But we must always remember that they do not save us through the working of the work. Our justification, as we will see, is by faith and by faith alone. My mother's faith can't save me. My father's faith can't save me. My sister's faith, my wife's faith. I have to have it. And it has to be in the heart. And so Paul now continues to drag us before the law, and the bad news is he's not finished with us yet. The beginning of chapter 3 continues the bad news, but the good news is within striking distance. So if you can hang on for at least one or two more weeks, we should begin to get to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Law and gospel both have their place in the Christian life. By the deeds of the flesh, by the law, nobody's saved. It's only through the gospel. But if you ignore the law, you'll never feel the weight of the need that you have for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these warnings to awaken us from our dogmatic slumbers, lest we fall into the same false assurance that those who were ethnic Jews fell into thinking that because they were circumcised, they were saved. Because they were descendants of Abraham, they were in your kingdom. For we know that you can raise up children of Abraham from the stones on the ground. And we thank you that the promises of those blessings have been given to us, even though we are not Jews, but that you have included us in the new covenant and in the kingdom of our Messiah. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.